As a driven dentist, you see the world differently. Where some see scarcity, you see abundance. When others want to give up, you keep going. You're building an amazing life of significance. That means you can't rely on ordinary advice from ordinary advisors to get to your goals. You want advice that's going to help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love, the causes you care about, and make your dent in the universe. But the fact is, this advice remains hidden because relatively few professionals are well-versed in them, and the extremely affluent don't care to let you know about them. Join us as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families. Welcome to Dental Wealth Nation. Here's your host, Tim McNeely. Hey, welcome everyone. I am so excited that you are here and and wow, do we have something special for you today. And, you know, like most dentists, we want to help you build an amazing life of significance. We want to help you maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love, causes you care about, and really change the world for the better. And one of the best ways for you to do that is by owning your own dental practice. And by the end of today, you're going to know the steps to buying a dental practice, and you're going to have a roadmap to, to help reduce the anxiety and, and fear and worries around this process because it can be overwhelming sometimes. But even more important, you're going to feel confident to go out there, make an offer, walk through this process, and buy a dental practice. It's going to be absolutely fantastic. And our guest today is Levy Barlavi, founder of Pacific Health Law Group. And Levy is a, a healthcare attorney, and we'll get into that and why that matters here because it's super important to, to work with experts. And he's going to share with us how you can build confidence around this process. Levy, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Good to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. Super, super excited to, to chat with you. We've known each other for a while, and I had a chance to collaborate with you and work with you with some of my clients. So super, super excited to, to just dive into this process. And, and, and for everyone who doesn't know you, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got started doing this very kind of specific thing. Yeah, happy to, happy to join you, Tim. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a healthcare transactional attorney, so what that means is I am basically a business attorney for doctors. Uh, most of my clients are dentists, and I work with them through all stages of their career, from starting up a practice through transition events, right, buying buying into practice or selling a practice, mergers, acquisitions, um, DSO models, and private equity investments. So I handle basically all the business contracts in a professional uh, career in a practice. Um, and my clients are very niche, they're all doctors. Fantastic, and, 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 and one of the things that I really enjoy about your practice is you don't just necessarily approach the law side. Super important, right? We, we wanna make sure that the law stuff is done correctly. But I wanna dive in and talk a little bit about what your philosophy is around buying a practice, around transitions, because I think that's something missing out there today is really, you know, what's the philosophy? How do you view these things within the whole framework of someone's, you know, financial, personal, professional life? That's a great question. Um, you know, I, I started in, I started my own practice about 10 years ago, and I worked almost exclusively with doctors from the beginning. And part of that was very personal because I come from a family of dentists and physicians and 
um, other healthcare providers and the intersection of their lives, their professional career with attorneys was always kind of a bad one. You know, they always looked at attorneys as people who were suing them. And, you know, when I started as a business attorney for doctors, I brought that mindset into, you know, what is what is the doctor going through when they're buying a practice where they're looking at an associate contract? And all of these events in a professional career are big life events for them. And they're, they're professional events, but they're big life events. So, you know, when I get a buyer who, a doctor who comes to my office and needs help to buy a practice, um, I always tell them a couple things, right? Um, you're about to take on a very significant life event. This is a huge investment when you buy a practice. You're taking out four or 500,000, a million, sometimes $2 million to buy a practice. At its core, you have to look at this as an investment. It's a financial investment and it's a career investment. You're borrowing money or, you, or you're, you're using significant amount of cash that you have to invest in an asset, which is the practice that you're buying. And two, you're investing in your career. Because once you take the path of becoming a practice owner, you shut off the path of buying a, a, you know, a different practice or becoming an associate somewhere else. So um, for, for my clients who have kids, I always joke this is going to be your second or third or fourth kid, depending on how many kids you have. Uh, or, if you, or if they don't have kids, I let them know this will be your first baby. You're going to be thinking about it. You know, as an owner of any type of business, your your business is always on your mind. So, um, my philosophy, if you're looking at this as an investment, is try to mitigate as much risk as possible, right? In the transitionary period of when you're in the deal flow, try to mitigate as much risk as possible, and we do that by leveraging our you know experience or having a good team around us. Or with knowledge, um, it's through the process we mitigate risk. Um, so that's my first philosophy, and my secondary philosophy is um, this is a very human uh, story. It's a very it's there. It's a journey from a buyer side or a seller side. Either the seller is, you know, winding down a legacy when they're when they're selling their practice. This is all they've really known. And from the buyer side, they're starting a journey. So there's a real huge human component to it. And there's a credible amount of anxiety when you buy a business. You know, you, you've worked very hard to get your license. You've already uh, taken on a lot of student loan debt. And now you're looking at taking on additional debt. Um, that can be really scary. Um, at the same time, most buyers are maybe getting married or buying a house or having their first kid. Life is happening around them. So from my point of view, my secondary philosophy in all of these deals is try to explain things to my client in a way that they understand and answer their questions. No question, the old adage that no question is stupid. It really isn't. Because if as a counselor or a team member, you can explain things to clients in a manner that they understand and explain the journey to them, it reduces all of their anxiety, not all of it, a considerable amount of their anxiety, and they're able to look at a deal clear-headed 
and uh, to get themselves prepared for the transition and to become very successful afterwards. Right, and, and I think that that's such a good way to approach it. In, in, right, when I hear you talk about reducing and mitigating risk, right, the, the thing that comes to mind for me is, right, thinking about buying a house, right? If you're buying a house, you know, maybe you got some leaky pipes in the wall or, you know, maybe you've got a foundation that isn't so sure. And right. So you, you do a home inspection to try to kind of discover some of these things in Absolutely the house right. that, that may be problematic. And so, you know, when you're when you're looking at and, and evaluating a dental practice, what are some of the, the risks that, that, that are there that, that we want to work on mitigating? You know, when you're buying a practice, um, you're essentially buying someone else's business, right? And a dental practice, like other businesses, is very it's an organic system. It has a lot of moving parts, and it has a lot of people. So it has patients, it has dental treatment, um, it has employees, it has uh, business systems, billing, insurance, collections. There's regulations associated with all of these things, employment law, you know, insurance regulations and how you bill, uh, and, 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 and of course, the, the treatment aspect of it. And so even in a dental practice transition, where as a buyer, most of these purchases are asset purchases where you're not taking on the liability, the buyer wants to do their due diligence to mitigate risk, to make sure that there's no employee lawsuits or disgruntled employees, to make sure that they don't have problems in this practice with billing or waiving co-pays so they haven't trained the patient base in a manner that isn't compliant with those insurance contracts. Um, so, you know, those are just a couple examples of mitigating risk by, by going into deal with your eyes wide open, doing your human due diligence, as I call it, going in with the CPA consultant, actually kicking the tires on the equipment, looking at the practice records, looking at the business systems, and doing your legal due diligence by having the seller represent issues with the practice that you might not have understood or appreciated when you were doing your uh, due diligence to flesh out potentially any issues that you should know about before you go in and buy the practice. Because, because even though you don't buy those liabilities, you're going to buy the headaches if they're built into the practice. Uh, right. Yeah. You know what? You, you may not have an employee lawsuit, but you may have some employees who just really don't get along that well. And so you will inherit that headache. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, the, the other thing you, you said that I thought was so interesting is, is, right, you talk about, you know, kind of the buyer's journey and the seller's journey. And, and right, it's two different people who have very different goals, right? One is usually Absolutely. exiting one's coming in and and they just happen to meet in this transaction. And so, you know, how do you work through that, right? Because like I said, you kind of got two different people, two different trajectories, two different goals, and you got to you gotta bring those parties together, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's good to understand what the actual steps you're going to take from getting to point A to point B. Point A being, you know, when you put in an offer to buy a practice and point B being when you finally close and, and, and consummate the transaction. So my starting point for every buyer is to make sure that they understand what steps we're going to take along this path, right? So um, if you want, I can just go through those steps with you. 
and then we can dive into how we negotiate with a seller on a transaction. Yeah. So, and I know you, you have 10 steps that you, you take people through, which I think is so great because this process can feel so overwhelming sometimes because there's just so much to do. And so, yeah, give us a real high level overview of the, those 10 steps. That would be very useful. Sure. So, you know, the 10 steps, and if you look at it in a 10 step process, usually you have a seller who's ready to retire or, or ready to move and sell his or her practice. And so they find a practice broker. They find someone who's going to package it, advertise it, and put it on the market and try to get a buyer to buy the practice. That's step number one. That happens before the buyer even gets involved. Step number two is the buyer goes into the market through different channels and looks at the ads that different brokers have and um, finds a practice that they're interested in. Um, After that, they put in an offer um, uh, to that broker. And, um, once that offer is accepted, they, they sign a letter of intent or deposit agreement. Um, that's the deal. That's the point of the deal where the process kind of gets started from there. It usually takes about, you know, 30 to 90 days to close on your transaction. And I always like to tell my clients that because many of them are associates, and they don't know when to give notice and they're working on the timing or they just, they want to be done with their job and they feel like they put in an offer they can quit now. You don't want to quit your job. This is a very long process, about 30 to 60 days. Uh, step four is that the buyer completes her due diligence and gets her loan approval, right? So you're going to go into the practice with a CPA, with a consultant, you're going to get a sense of whether this practice is what you thought it was, looking at it from the inside, and you're going to get your financing in order, you know, to to finance that purchase price. Once you finish that, and these things aren't completely linear, but it's how I like to think about it, you're then going to negotiate the legal documents, right? You're going to negotiate a purchase agreement, often called the asset sale agreement, asset purchase agreement, you're going to negotiate potentially a seller carryback, uh, a, a new lease, lease assignment, uh, a, a, a associate agreement potentially for the seller if they're going to stay on. Um, and then you're going to get approved. Step six is to get approved by the landlord um, as a tenant because you can't have a practice without a home and the lease gives you the keys to that home. Um, so once you negotiate the the lease and you get approved. That's step six. Uh, step seven is finalize all those documents and sign them. And then you're going to have some pre-closing obligations that you have to fulfill as a buyer and a seller. That's step seven. Then you will, uh, the step eight, sorry, then you will close the deal. And that's the date where the wires are funded and all the liens are released and you take on the keys to the practice and the assets. And it's not done when you close. Your relationship with the seller is not done with you when you close because you have post-closing obligations that the parties owe to each other that are negotiated in that purchase agreement that you have to be keep your eye on and finish those transitionary processes and obligations. And so that's kind of the arc of the buyer's journey. It takes about, you know, anywhere from 30, 60 days once you get your uh, LOI signed to actually get to closing. But the process can be much longer in terms of looking for a practice, 
and what you have to do in terms of your relationship with the seller after you close on a deal. Okay. So, so right, kind of reviewing and thinking about that arc, right? Deals don't, you know, always go in that very linear pattern. Like you mentioned, right. sometimes things can get sideways or you'll, you'll have some issues arise. You know, where do you really kind of along that arc, where, where do you see people get stuck or where do you see issues start to arise? You know, I always tell my clients there's probably four or five things maybe you know you're aware of some of them when maybe you're not that are going to be obstacles in this path um, they can be you know you find something out while you do your due diligence that really is material and, and makes you think about this practice differently and you need to renegotiate the price um, you know you don't get your loan approval for some reason and you have to reanalyze why. Is it something to do with your credit? Is it something to do with this practice? Um, potentially, you find out something when you're negotiating the legal documents um, that you didn't know that this seller has another practice five miles away. You know, they didn't make that uh, apparent to you when you were looking at that. And now that gives you some pause. And how do you handle that? Um, maybe the seller has a family member working in the practice that you weren't aware of that you find out is this manager who's now related to the seller you know are you going to be able to buy their confidence and and can they assist you with the transition and if you don't want them there what are you going to do you have 30 to 60 days to figure out who's going to be your manager now um, and potentially the landlord is a roadblock in this process so you know and then so there's all of these things that can happen that that you have to navigate during a deal process and then there's things that you're just not aware of you know when you're when you're reviewing contracts and you're talking to your attorney about representations that the seller is making and now you're concerned about these kind of obligations when you're in the middle of it um, i find that some transactions can go sideways um, but i think the root of uh, most deals falling apart have to do with the emotional aspect that the clients are going through that uh, if an attorney is not attuned to, they can't address with their client. Uh, I think fear is a, the biggest factor for why um, deals die, why they fall apart, because um, clients will, will, you know, will hone on something that if you quantify it is not materially impactful for the deal, but they won't let go of it and it causes this tension between the buyer and seller. And if you go to the root cause of that, it's really the client's just scared, right? They're, they're either scared about this loan they're taking on and you know the reality of becoming a practice owner is starting to take on and they have you know, a, a thousand things they're doing at the same time. And by the way, life is going on. And so that fear grips them and they start negotiating in a way that um, causes the deal to go sideways. And so, you know, as a deal attorney, I found that most of what I do is, you know, playing therapist a lot of time with my clients, understanding, you know, explaining things to them and helping them get through those, those obstacles. Yeah, right. And, and that's so true, right? Fear 
on the wrong things can, can keep us from moving forward on something that they can really impact our lives in a positive way. And so, you know, as you kind of, you know, work through this with the, the buyers, are there, are there certain mindsets or, or certain things that, that you're kind of really coaching people to, to do so that they can build up that confidence and, and help reduce the fear? What do you see that the successful buyers in terms of like just the, their mindset and, and thought process, what are they doing to, to really kind of push these things forward that the, the people living in fear aren't doing? Well, there, you know, there's, there's all different types of buyers, but if you had to break it down to just two, there's, they're the buyers who run through doors and clean up the mess later. And, and they're successful in a lot of ways, but they have to deal with a lot of issues from just busting through doors. And usually they don't have the kind of fear factors that, cause deals to fall apart because they're looking at big picture. And then there's the buyers who are maybe in their head a lot and there's a lot of self-talk and self-doubt and they're, they're thinking about the fact that they're about to have a kid or they're thinking about the fact that they have $400,000 of student loan debt and they're about to take on another 600. Um, and I, I love those kind of buyers because they're, they're, a lot of ways they're like how, how I was when I started out as a business owner and what I need to reduce anxiety is knowledge, right? I need to understand the process of dealing with something. I need to break it down. And I find that most dentists are like that too. They're very mechanical. And so for me, you know, my job, I think as a deal attorney, is to address that, you know, if I do my job right, if I explain the process to them, they have more knowledge, they understand the journey, it reduces the anxiety a little. Yeah. If I talk to them about the fact that, you know, a, the reason the lender is giving you 100% financing for your transaction, you know, is, is because um, you are a, a default risk of you know, a fraction of 1%. You're, you're almost as good as gold for these lenders. And they would not give you or approve this loan unless they analyze all of the financials of the practice and you personally and felt like the practice has enough cash flow to service your debt, to pay your personal expenses, and pay for the overhead of the practice. And they have very elaborate ratios for this. And so it's, while it's true that you have student loan debt, they wouldn't give you this money at 100% financing, you know, very little collateral. The bank has really, no, you know, what are they going to do with the dental chairs that they have liens on? It's really you they're investing in, right? And it's a practice that has that cash flow that they're investing in. So, you know, when I have conversations about that with a client, um, you know, they might think differently about the practice, but I always tell them, this is not my money that we're investing, right? This is not my practice that we're buying. I'm giving you all the tools you need to make the best personal decision for yourself in this deal. And um, every deal is different and every every doctor is coming at it from a different angle. Yeah. Well, right. And I, and I think you gave us a, a really valuable thing just now. And if you were listening, I hope you picked up on that again is, is once again, you know, this philosophy of approaching the, the transaction of acquiring a practice 
it's an investment, right? If you view it as an investment to, to really, you know, further your life, to, to help build up your wealth, to help improve your quality of life, then you can analyze it not on just an emotional basis, but from a, a reasoned and a rational basis too. And you can work through things that, that may pop up because things do pop up. And, you know, we were talking earlier, right? Um, you know, you were mentioning uh, a landlord that was giving the buyer some issues. In fact, that lease was a bit of a liability. <clears throat> and I know the way you approached it and, and some of the, the framing and the conversation and the tone played a huge role in resolving that issue. Can, can you walk us through what happened? Yeah, this was a this was a recent deal um, that we had where my client was buying a practice, and as most clients do, when you buy a practice, the seller will have a lease with that landlord that will have to get transferred to you as a buyer, and that lease will have to meet some requirements for the bank to meet their underwriting conditions, and so one of the parties you deal with in this ecosystem of a deal is a landlord who is not necessarily going to jump because you say you want something to be done fast and um, is not as invested in the deal that the, that the seller and the buyer is to, to work through some of these issues. And so landlords can be a huge impediment to a deal. And um, it's one thing that the seller and, both, seller and buyer both have to work with in combination to get the buyer a lease and get approved. Um, in this particular case, my client had a practice. They have great credit. Um, it was two doctors. So the, you know, getting the client approved as a tenant was not the issue. But part of my work is to look at the seller's lease and review it because even though we can't, we're not getting a new lease for the client, I still have to look at the lease that they're inheriting. And in this particular lease, it had you know, two really nasty provisions, um, a relocation clause and a recapture clause um, that I won't bore you with the details, but the, the, the problem was that these kind of clauses kind of really turned this lease into a liability. And so my due diligence is to review that and explain it to my client. And so here we are. Um, we have to try to get these clauses out of the lease. Um, and the landlord was, was giving really no time of day to my client. And uh, my client had interactions with the landlord's agent to get approved for, to be a tenant. And so the landlord's agent was very short with the client, uh, very impatient with the client. And, um, I came into that process um, a little bit later. So at this time, the landlord's completely a patient with this whole deal. Hmm. And um, again, it goes back to kind of like having a human approach. So um, the landlord's agent wouldn't even take my calls, right? And I, I just want to, sometimes you just get on the phone, you talk these things through, and you can explain to the landlord that you know, we need an additional five-year option so that my client could get her loan approved. Or these two provisions you have in the lease are really potentially detrimental to my, to my client's ability in the future. And so they wouldn't even pick up the phone. So you know, what I did there was, you know, you just gotta come out at, at a different angle. So I wrote her an email and I kind of explained 
the story of my client, you know, how successful they've been in the practice. And I knew in this case, the landlord wasn't too thrilled with the seller, you know, the current tenant. And so I gave them an angle to say, hey, listen, we can be beneficial to you because they have a successful practice. They've been good tenants. You can talk to the references. And this might be a win for you to have them in there. But in order for it to be a win-win, you know, we need this. And I explained why. But I think the tone of the email, you know, you know, writing to her and explaining how much we appreciate that she's taking time to even read this email and um, how much work my client put into the deal to get to the point that he and she were at um, to become successful, to become a second practice owner, changed everything. And so the landlord, I think, um, you know, once you kind of built the story in there and they weren't just dealing with the uh, phone calls and some, someone finally told them, you know, we appreciate the time you're taking out of your day. They just took a, a second longer, a moment longer to review the explanations. And that's all it took. You know, she called me back and she, you know, she was a little bit contrite about being short with the client. She expressed that all of it was a frustration doing with dealing with the current tenant and not my client, but that she appreciated that maybe having a new doctor, a new successful doctor in there would, would be a good thing for them. And so they worked with us and they got, um, they got us a new lease, uh, a, a revised lease in the amendment that got the deal done. So, um, you know, sometimes it's just the approach you take. Yeah, oh, that that's fantastic, right? And I think it's those things that that really help build confidence for you listening. It, it is knowing that these things can be done. Issues are, are certainly going to pop up, but if you approach them with wisdom, with insight, with experience, most things can be resolved. And you know, ultimately, right? There's a lot of negotiation that that goes into the entire process, isn't there, Levy? Yeah, you're always negotiating, <laughs> right? Whether it, it, it's the price or it's the the you're landlord always, or the charts, yeah. right? The whole thing is just one yeah. big negotiation, and so everything. I mean, everything is life is a negotiation, yeah. right, Kim? So, so yeah, right. That right with my wife, right? Everyone, right? We're always negotiating with people. with yourself sometimes. Yeah, oh, <laughs> I, I I lose that battle all the time. <laughs> But yeah, no, you're so right, right? Just negotiation takes place everywhere. And and when you're buying a practice, is does, does the negotiation fall on the buyer? Does it does it fall on you as the legal representative, right? Who who does the the negotiating? Well, you know, primarily when you're at the point where the attorneys are involved, it's it's a negotiation between the attorneys. But I always tell my client, you know, I'm, I can't make decisions for you. I can give you the tools to make the right decisions for yourself. And I can be your sounding board and answer questions for you related to whatever point we're negotiating, right? Um, typically, the, the client, the, the principals negotiate the material terms, the economic terms, and the attorneys help the clients negotiate the legal aspects of it. Um, so, you know, I think it's a team effort when it comes to negotiating in a transaction and there's everything is a negotiation. You first start with the terms, the purchase price, the covenant not to compete, the economic terms, what you're buying, what you're not buying. 
And then you move on down the road until the closing. And everything is a negotiation until closing. And um, what I found is that everything is negotiable, but everything shouldn't be a negotiation, right? Um, if a client is trying to negotiate every single point um, and make everything a win or lose, they're losing the big picture, right? So there's a there's an adage that um, you should never settle, right? You should never settle, um, and it, it takes different forms. And I actually find this. I'm a, I'm a little bit counterintuitive with this. I think that you should always settle, right? Except that you should settle um, understanding first the principles and core values that you don't want to settle on, right? So if you if you put up your guardrails, um, you should uh, figure out what's really important in the deal for you not settle on those terms, but leave everything else open to negotiation. Okay. No, I, I think that that's so helpful to, to understand and, and have that perspective. In fact, I helped underwrite some research in a book that really looks at how, you know, driven entrepreneurs, driven business people negotiate. And it's called everyone wins. And it's like, those are the outcomes you want to create, right? You don't just want me, me, me. Because the other side is going to walk away never wanting to do this. And so the more you can create, you know, good outcomes for everyone involved, I really believe the more successful you're going to be. And so, absolutely, you know, yeah. especially, I mean, you know, especially for a buyer, you know, part of what you're buying is the seller's legacy. Mm -hmm. And they are, they're going to be an entity in this practice, whether they're, even when they're not there, you know, their legacy is still there. And so if you're coming into a deal um, and as an attorney or as a buyer, negotiating to the point that you're looking to kind of knock out the seller or you're looking to one-up the seller or win, you've lost everything. Because after the closing, you need to maintain that relationship with the seller. And if you maintain a great relationship, that seller is going to be available to you to answer questions. That seller is going to be more willing to uh, give you a fantastic stamp of approval when they meet with a, uh, when they see uh, one of the patients or they want to give you introduction to the referral sources. And so you always have to keep the relationship of the seller and the buyer in mind, in my opinion, when you, whenever you're involved in the negotiation. And that's what I tell my clients. Right. It's almost as if, right, if you complete the transaction and the buyer walks away going, I got a smoking deal and I screwed the, screwed the seller, that's a really bad transaction, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, it's not my money that I'm investing. So I always tell clients that. But whenever clients tell me, hey, I, you know, I want to, we've agreed to this purchase price. I have my bank approval for the 750000 But, you know, I found this thing and I want to reduce the purchase price. Well, how much do you want to reduce it by, right? I want to, I think $50,000 is fair to reduce it. $50,000 is a significant amount of money. Significant amount of money. That's, you know, a one year salary for a lot of people. So I don't, behoove the client for wanting to reduce it and maximize. 
but the but the truth is you know that fifty thousand dollars financed over ten years that's a couple you know that's a couple handful of more crowns over ten years, and you might get the reduction in the purchase price, but if you get or uh, if you soured the seller to the point that they don't want to do business with you and you they have deal fatigue so they're just going to close and accept, but afterwards they're not going to be available to help you with the transition. They're not going to put in a good word to referral sources. They're not going to put in good word to patients. Then you might have won an initial $50,000, but what you've lost is both financially, uh, is financially much more greater than, than the $50,000, I think. And every deal is different. You know, some deals, you know, there are material issues that would, that would, uh, require a reduction in the purchase price, but but a lot of times you got to measure whether it makes sense overall to have that negotiation. Yeah, no, right. And once again, right, I, I hear your philosophy of right, just viewing these a, as an investment, and you know, making wise choices, and then then understanding the story of both the buyer and the seller really comes through in all your thoughtfulness of the answers that you're giving on on how to approach this. So, you know, you've been listening to Dental Wealth Nation, Tim McNeely here with Levy Bar Lobby. We've been talking about how you can buy a dental practice with confidence. We've we've covered the philosophy of buying a practice and really looking at it as an investment. We've talked ways about some ways that you can mitigate risk in buying the, the practice and how do you know if it's the right choice? We've talked about some of the reasons that deals fail and the reason deals succeed. And and and, and so Levy, kind of in, in in just closing up here on some of those last thoughts in terms of advice that, that you would give a buyer or Maybe that you do give them when they when they first pick up the the phone and talk to you. What do you share with them to really help them build that confidence? I always ask them, "How are you feeling?" When a client's buying a practice, I always ask them, "How are you feeling?" And um, it's kind of strange, maybe because a lot of attorneys just talk about the technical stuff, but I really want to know, you know, where are they at and where are they at in their life, and you know. The best answers for me is I am super excited and I'm super nervous, right? You should feel very excited about the opportunity before you. And if you're not, then whatever your why is for what you're doing, why you're doing this, you haven't met it, right? You know, you have to answer why you're doing what you're doing. And when you find the practice you want, you should get excited for it. You would also be probably off the mark if you weren't nervous, right? Because you kind of need that nervous energy to see things with a cleared eye, um, to mitigate those risks, right? And not be, um, you know, have rose colored glasses about everything. So, you know, the emotional components of that, I think are very good for a successful buyer. Um, but really for all my clients, I always ask them, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? If the reason isn't, you know, I want to do this or I've always want to have my practice because I want to, I have a certain practice philosophy that I want, or I want to become financially secure and successful. If you're not, if you don't know what your reason is, ultimately you'll be marooned in this deal process. You, you will not be happy. It won't be fun. It will be very difficult. And you might end up with a practice that you don't want. 
Wow, that 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 is is great wisdom, Levy. You know, it, it's almost as if that that fear and anxiety really kind of serves as a goalpost to say, hey, I, I'm I'm properly thinking through these things, right? And, and I'm really analyzing it. And, and you know, for me, I, I think back to one of the the best days of my life, and that's when I got married to my beautiful wife. And I'll tell you, on that day, I was super excited and I was super. <laughs> And uh, so, no, great, great wisdom. And, and you know, for those of you listening, right, we've, we, you know, we're talking about legal issues, but we're also dealing a lot with your mindset and how to approach these things. And, and one of the reasons I, I, I love having people like Levy on is we're able to not just talk about the, the importance of, you know, how do you buy a dental practice with confidence, but Levy's also a successful business owner himself. And, and I love to dive into some of the mindsets and, and things that help get him to where he is. So you can use those same things in your journey also. And so, you know, Levy, you know, when it really comes to, to maintaining a positive, you know, productive mindset, right? Business ownership is hard. What are you doing on a regular basis to stay positive, to stay productive, to, to stay, you know, to keep your mindset sharp? It's a really good question. Um, you know, I think what has made me successful as a business owner is being self-aware. And when I started out 10 years ago, um, I was really terrible at owning a business and running a business. And I had to be self-aware of that fact and then go ask for help. So, you know, I always tell my clients that that was a big part of my success is, is, is being self-aware of what you're good at and what you're not good at and, and finding someone to help you with those pain points. So that's certainly one aspect of it. And then, um, you know, when I started out, it was, it was having kind of a North star, you know, it took me four or five years into practice to finally set up a business plan. And, you know, you know, I was just talking to a client about this the other day, you might not know how to write a business plan, but writing one is better than not having one, right? Because it just gives you something to point to. And actually, it was it was early in the pandemic that you helped me kind of revive that idea. You know, we were talking and you were talking about this vivid vision exercise that you were participating in. Um, based on uh, what was the name? What's the name of the author? I forgot. That's, uh, Cameron Harold. Cameron Harold. Yes. Yeah. So you turned me on to the book, and I read the book, and it was fantastic. And much like a business plan, the vivid vision requires you to set out some, a day outside of you know any technology and write down how you imagine your business is going to look, feel, operate on a visceral emotional level in three years out. And so you you write that down and you put pen to paper and then you take that and you turn it into a document, almost like a little constitution, a business plan as your core values, what you want to accomplish, what it will look like and operate in three years. And I did that, you know, the downturn uh, in 2020 offered a lot of opportunity for me to work on things that I, didn't have time to work on or I didn't put time to work on. And so, you know, on your advice, I took up that lesson and I did it and it's been fantastic. You know, having that vision in the, in the six months that I did it, you know, I've already accomplished almost three of the four big 
goals that I had already put in there to have three years out. So I think, you know, for, for doctors looking to buy a practice, it's very easy when, you know, you've gone through years of graduate school and schooling and you're just, you're kind of in this machine and taking steps to just take the next natural step. And you got to take a step back and answer your why. Why do you do the things you do? Why, what do you want to practice? How does your practice, how is it going to look like? How is it going to feel? What is your philosophy going to be? And take that and make it your vision and then go and, and, and do it. You know, start a practice, buy a practice, but with the vision in mind. You will be successful as long as you're authentic with what you want to do. Oh, I, I, I love hearing that. I'm, I'm so happy that, that doing that exercise helped you out. I know it's helped me. Yeah, it was awesome. I, and, and it's so interesting, right? I, I hear you talk about, right, you wrote this down, and now all of a sudden you like go back and look at it, and several of the things you wrote down have happened. And, and I wish I could tell you, oh, that's really unique and that's special, but, it, but a lot of my colleagues, a lot of my friends I talk to about this, we've had the same experience, right? The, the, the fact that you set this North star and you start heading after it, all of a sudden things start happening because you're training the mind to focus on what's important to you. So the, the other bit we've dived into is just right. Managing fear, right? I, I know I certainly have fear right early on in my career. And, and even today I, I still struggle with what a lot of people call imposter syndrome. It's like, man, am I really good enough to do this, right? Am I, am I really, you know, qualified to do the things I do? And I know early on struggle with it a whole lot and it still comes out today. And so, you know, what are some of the fears that, that, that you deal with and how do you manage that fear? Oh, I, you know, that was a big part of my journey early on as an entrepreneur is I was gripped with fear, right? imposter syndrome. I don't know what I'm doing. No one's ever taught me these things. And, um, you know, one thing that I learned that was really effective for me is, especially for someone, if, if there's anyone of your clients who live in their head, who are very analytical, um, that's what I do. I, I'm always living in my head. I found that writing things down is very effective in terms of um, kind of combating or getting through fear, anxiety, obstacles. There was, a, there was a point in my career very early on where I wasn't sure if I was going to cut it. Um, I wasn't making enough money. I was struggling. I didn't have the skill set to be an effective entrepreneur. You know, you come out of graduate school, you might know about the law or how to become a, how to be a good dentist, but you never learn the business side of what your profession is, as I didn't. And so there was a lot of fear about that when I was, so I, I remember it distinctly. I took out a piece of paper and I wrote down, you know, what are the worst outcomes of me failing at this, this, you know, endeavor that I'm on. And, you know, I wrote like a paragraph and I think the worst thing that was going to happen to me is just a bruised ego, right? I can get a job anywhere. Now that I have a license, that's why you go to graduate school to become a doctor, an attorney, or a dentist, is a job security. And when I broke it down and I just realized, listen, the worst thing that's going to happen to me is I'm going to have a bruised ego and I'm going to go get a job at a firm, you know, I had to kind of check myself and say, all right, you got to tone it down a little bit with all the self-talk. And 
it's just a matter of writing things down. So it's nice to write things down to create kind of vision and a North Star. It's also good to write things down when you're dealing with problems or you have an anxiety or fear to actually get it out of your head because you kind of put it aside then and you think more clearly and you can attack it with some clear-headedness. Wow, what, what, what a fantastic response to, to managing fear, right? And how interesting is it that, that when we actually name our fears and write them down, sometimes they're not as bad as what our head tells us they are, isn't it? Right, absolutely. Well, hey, Levy, this has been such a joy to, to talk with you, to, to really build this confidence up, to get some insight into how you've built a successful practice. Where can people get a hold of you? Where, where can we find you at? Yeah, you can find me. You can go to my website, pacifichealthlaw.com. Um, you'll find information. You'll find the stuff I'm writing about. You can schedule a meeting with me on the website uh, at a time where I can call you back if, if you need any help with any transactional stuff that you're involved in. Um, you know, I just, I'm not big into social media, but I've made a push out there. So you can also find me on Instagram at uh, the stoic attorney the stoic attorney and uh those two should give you a good good in uh lead in in terms of some of the stuff i'm doing with work fantastic and we'll put links down below so you can reach out to levy if you've got questions about buying a practice selling a practice or just how can you work through this process with confidence so levy hey thank you so much for sharing so generously with us i, I know i certainly feel more confident about buying a practice. And I don't know that I would because I'm not a doctor, but, uh, you know, just walking through it, right. Knowing, building that knowledge, it helps to build confidence. So, so thank you for supporting the dental community and the medical community, the, the way you do it. Any closing thoughts for us before we sign off here? Thank you, man. No, I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on and it's always nice to talk to you. You have, you, you have this contagious way of, uh, of talking. I've always loved talking to you and learning about, uh, what you do and collaborating and helping clients. So thank you. Hey, likewise. And for you listening, thank you for tuning in. And I'm going to end this episode the same way I end every single one of them. You've heard a whole bunch of good stuff. Now I want you to go out there and implement it. If you've just listened to everything we've talked about and you don't take action on it, you literally just wasted some of your time. You, you didn't do anything with it. And we don't do this just to entertain you. We do it because we want you to take action. We want you to build an amazing life of significance so that you can take even better care of the people you love, support the causes you care about, and keep changing the world for the better. So get out there and make it a great day. You've been listening to Dental Wealth Nation. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from the show. Join us next time as we pull back the curtain to reveal the often hidden advice and strategies used by today's most successful individuals and families and help maximize your net worth so you can take even better care of the people you love. Till next time, make sure to hit the website at dentalwealthnation.com. 